Hello, everyone. My name is Kayla. And I'm Steph. And welcome to the Witch Story Podcast. We'd like to say thank you to all of our regular listeners for joining us once again here. If you are new, Witch Story Podcasts talk about real cases of witch trials, tales, folklore, and other stories related to witchcraft that Steph and I have researched. As always, we are trying our best to shed light on the true histories of witches to the best of our abilities. All right, today's episode is jam-packed with so much fun stuff for y'all. We had such an amazing time recording it. So our main topic is going to be a witch trial that takes place in Estonia in the 1500s. And before talking about it, we thought we should dive into the history and a little brief summary of the culture surrounding the country of Estonia before our trial takes place, because it's really important to know all that stuff before we see what their idea for witches, because it's different in every culture, every time period, every region. So we look at that and it's super fun and exciting. And stay tuned till the end where Steph gives a little talk about Beltane, otherwise known as May Day, which is coming up this weekend. So we hope you enjoy today's episode as we have enjoyed it so much recording for you. Let's get into... The History of Estonia. So for some people that may not know, Estonia is kind of in the northeast section of Europe. It's right on the Baltic Sea. Uh, It's bordering Latvia and Russia. A lot of people think that because it's in the east, it's a Slavic country, but it's not. And a lot of people also think that because there was Vikings there, it's a Nordic country, but it's not that either. It's kind of its own thing, and if people had to really group it with another country, I'd say similarly, culturally, it might be the closest actually to the Finnish. Just because they they border that, well, they don't border it. There's the sea obviously splits them apart, but they're gulf they're gulfed with each other. Like Estonia is right across from Finland. You can actually take a ferry from one country to the other in about two hours, two and a half hours. So relatively speaking, they're not that far away. But like you said, the water splits them. If you haven't heard of Estonia, that's okay. It's a super small country, but I think we got to get to know them because it's so interesting. It's absolutely incredible, their history. It is. It has a very rich history. And I guess it's not well known, especially in North America. So Mm -hmm. this is going to be interesting to talk about and a lot of fun. I wonder what the population in Estonia is. I'm going to give you a quick Google search because it is a small country. Okay, so there's 1.3 million people in Estonia. And if I'm correct, I think that's the same amount. Nope, we have almost 3 million people in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. I was just going to say the same thing. I'm like, I think we have more than that now. Like, I think not long ago we were at 2 million, but now we're at 3. So So picture a country with less than half the size population of Toronto. Wow. Um, For other people, let's see New York's population because I get... okay. New York has over 8 million people. Yeah, I was going to say New York is really congested <laughs> in uh, a very small space. 
Paris has 2.1 million people. Okay, so Estonia as an entire country, it's small, not a lot of people. Um, And it's also, did you know, Steph, (laughs) (laughs) that Estonia is the least religious country in the world? No, I did not know that, Kayla. (laughs) (laughs) I always thought that... um, Holland was one of those and I think they do qualify as that just like when I went there um almost two years ago now crazy how time flies oh my god but when I went there like all of their churches were pretty much converted into something else (laughs) Mm -hmm. um or they were just museums and a a Mm -hmm. lot of them like just weren't being used and still are not like they they had a beer festival inside of an old church And I thought that that was very interesting because I've never seen that before. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Um, I also like when they convert little old churches into like modern lofts. I think that's really cool. I would live in one of those. Yeah. Do they have, I've never seen one here. Yeah, they have them. You can like make them into little loft spaces or just make the whole thing like one huge house. Um, Not a lot though, but I've definitely seen them. So let's get back to Estonia. Sorry, we got carried away a little bit there. The history of the country is super captivating, and it's really what made researching this case enjoyable. It began to be settled by people around 10,500 years ago, but there was many disputes on the border since it was settled. In the first century, we really see the word Estonia because it was used by historian Tacitus, so we can see it in texts. And by the 9th century, we see that the people became known as Estonians, and that term started being used to signify the people of the area. The country itself, like the Baltics, were organized a little differently than we think when we picture the rest of early Europe at this point. They were very pagan, and they were organized in more tribe-like communities. So they had parishes and counties which had villages and fortresses that were governed by elders. So a little bit differently when you think about the structure of the towns. In history, Estonians were known to Scandinavians to use a form of magic called wind magic, similar to the Finns of the North. And we know this because they also regularly went to battle against the Scandinavians. Like I said, there were Vikings in Estonia too. And we'll talk more about the magic after, but Estonia became one of the last areas of medieval Europe to be Christianized. And I think this is really important to understand before we get into our trial, but Steph's going to take it over from here because she knows more about the Northern Crusades. And I'm so sorry if you hear my dog, Brooklyn, in the background. I can't stop her. She's super hyper today. But take it away, Steph. But, like, it wasn't only wind magic, or, like, yes, that's what it was called. But I remember reading a while ago, and it was from a German perspective, because it was mostly, like, Teutonic Knights and German military that went over there to Christianize them. Um, and they would have recorded a lot. Exactly. And what they did see or what they claimed to see was them creating storms with their own magic. Women or men would get staff that would control a storm or create like really awful thunderstorms or even like tornadoes as well, which is 
pretty interesting. <laughs> good for use um, in battle. <laughs> yes, very good for use in battle. <laughs> but what originally started the Northern Crusades, what they're known as, the Northern Crusade is kind of an umbrella term for when Latin Christendom went north to conquer or Christianize the pagan societies that were in the Baltic regions. But there were many different cultures and societies, such as the Wends, such as the Livonians, and the Livonians includes Latvians and Estonians, and many more. And these crusades went on for centuries, actually, and decades. This was not just for a few years. It was for a very long time. But what served as the precursor or war against the Baltic pagans was the Magdeburg Charter in 1107. This charter called for the evangelization or mission to Christianize the Baltic pagans. And Pope Eugenius III and Bernard of Clairvaux were the heads of expanding the Second Crusade. The Second Crusade also involved going to Jerusalem, but they wanted to include Christianizing the Wends, also known as the West Slavs, in 1147. But the Northern Crusades officially began in 1195 with Pope Alexander III's papal bull issued in 1171. It was called Non Parum Animus Noster, which means was not a little soul to be transformed into. Like basically, the bull was saying that they wanted to convert these people, um, but not just convert. To convert, you kind of had to destroy their society and what was known to them. So they were attacked during the Baltic and Northern Crusades initiated by Pope Celestine in 1193 in a war against the Northern pagans. A bunch of wars actually happened here after the Danish, the Swedes, the Polish, Lithuanian Commonwealth, all of them had at it with Estonia. The Livonian and Estonian Crusades specifically took place from 1198 to 1290. That is a very long time. <laughs> that's like, that's a hundred years. You, you could also say that these Northern Crusades, quote unquote, as a whole continued into the 15th century. Pagan temples and organized pagan faith and society was destroyed over decades. Um, and finally, the Protestant Reformation headed by Martin Luther, who's German, um, spread to Estonia in the 1520s. But yeah, so originally... What I think happened is that the Germans kind of informed the Pope through hundreds of years of what they were seeing. And then the Pope, more than one Pope, disagreed with how they lived and how different they were. And they needed to, you know, evangelize and Christianize their society. And so this was literally like one of the first I guess you could say crusades that wasn't for the Holy Land. They were literally just attacking people because they lived differently, because they were pagan. And yeah, this whole thing just makes me a little angry because of that. Yeah. It's just, just uncalled. Well, not, not that like the crusades to Jerusalem are uncalled for because they totally were, but that war has gone on for thousands of years. This one was just like they literally attack them because they're different. That's all. And then there is also some cases where they um, attributed their practices, their pagan practices to Muslim practices just to make them sound bad in their own perspective. 
And yeah, it's just, there's so much that happened. And a lot of people don't actually like know about this part of history. They don't even know about the existence of the Northern Crusade. It's not a very popular topic. So I really like how we're giving this backstory so that you can better understand kind of how the country was and how it was constantly bombarded and then Christianized. Yeah. Yeah, Like what we said in the beginning, it's important to know because it has a lot of effect on the stories and what happened in Estonia after up till today, I guess. When we tell the story or when you so eloquently tell the story, (laughs) um, like we don't, it's not going to be too much about the history of the country itself, but just because it's in a different country, I think it's, it's better that people know more about it so that they're not completely left in the dark and they don't think that it's some like barbaric place because Mm -hmm. it's not, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think while we look more in the trials, like you can see some similarities between the countries that we've covered more than once already. Like in France, like you see that possessions and exorcisms was a huge thing in the early 1600s. And that was a thing that was like very predominant there. And then you have in America where um, people were getting hanged a lot for just sleeping with the wrong person or having sex before marriage like Mm -hmm. and you have to understand like why the countries ended up doing the witch trials the way that they did yeah that makes sense yeah so after that long ass intro of the short history of estonia let's get into our witch trial We're going back in time to year 1542. This was not the first documented case that we have evidence for in Estonia. The first case for a witchcraft execution was actually in the Saku Manor outside the city of Raval in 1527. But this one is way better documented. And that says a lot because it's pretty much just a few pieces of paper in like old Germanic, but that's okay. I got you. I translated it for you. So we're going to the Palula Manor. The manor itself had existed since at least 1489. So the area at the time was kind of established, still a small town, but people have been living there for a while. This trial itself because of the manor, is sometimes also referred to as the Palula trial. The accused was one Mrs. Anna Zoiga and a handful of her helpers. Anna was born in the village of Palula, the closest major city being Rakver. Sorry if I'm not pronouncing these places right. I've been asking so many Estonian people and Apparently, nobody here knows how to actually speak Estonian, which I get it. It's a hard language. But if you do know how, please, please let us know if we've been pronouncing these correctly or incorrectly. Anyways, our dear Anna wanted to poison her husband, a Mr. Johan van Meck, and his father, who was possibly also named Johan, Johan or Hans, um, but the husband himself, he was the land owner of the Palula Manor. So he was a rich nobleman. He had his manor and everything. 
Why did Anna want to poison him? She was in love with another man, another manor owner named Jürgen von Madel, and she saw murder as her only way to get him and to be rid of her husband. I mean, she was probably right in that respect. Not, not, I'm not saying that <laughs> murder is okay. Okay. I'm just, I'm just saying that back then you couldn't really get a divorce. So that was like the only way out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so while reading about this trial, I think that Jurgen also wanted Anna. Like they must have already been in love. And the reason I think that is because he assisted in this murder. He asked for the help of his servant, an old blind lady named Margarita Cruda. Old Margarita knew a thing or two about folk magic. Like I said, Estonia previously had their own religious and healing practices, so she was one of these cunning folk that we talk about, which honestly, I would love for her to teach me a thing or two about traditional medicine and magic. Mm-hmm. Me too. And with the help of Mar Margrete Mar Margaret Margaret Marg Margie Maggie. Margie Margie <laughs> Gretty. I don't know. Um, <laughs> with the help of our dear Margrete, they successfully poisoned the father, but then they were found and accused by the husband Johan. I think he had some suspicions beforehand. But he found out before they could get to him. So Anna immediately ran away and sought refuge in a town called Haliala with her brother, Johann Zoiga. Again, sorry, another Zo Johann. That's the third Johann of our story. Um, but her brother naturally, obviously stood up for her. And even though she was safe there, she was banished from Palula. The others who helped, however, would not escape so easily. We know what happened to all of them because at the time in Estonia, landowners were allowed to conduct trials on their own estates for peasants. And so the interrogation and trials began, and we actually have the documentation that they would have taken themselves, but it's in super old German and like the old writing cursive style, you know, so it was very hard to translate. But I tried my best, but you're going to see some things might have gotten a little lost in translation. You'll understand exactly what I mean in a second. The first thing in the trial that they looked at was the manner in which the dad was quote-unquote poisoned. It was completely bizarre, a whole ordeal. It wasn't anything similar to what we've seen in our trials so far, and it's really magic, I think. The, the idea of magic. Um, yeah, the idea of it. I like how you said that, and like very Potterish. Oh, totally. What it's about to happen sounds like it's actually from Harry Potter. So on trial, Jürgen's servant, Margaret, old Margaret, as we know now, and Anna's servant, a woman named Anne, not Anna, Anne, were put on trial. Margaret had told Anna, bear with me here with all the names, she told Anna to take poison salt, 
three times and then throw it at the feet of her husband and father. And then they would die. When this worked and the father died, Anna was so happy, she began to shower old Margareta and the other peasants with all of these expensive gifts and food, like all of these fancy breads and some goats to have, and a golden dress was promised. But I think the jury and interrogators are asking what's in our heads, and they asked what was the result of this poison assault what would what would that have done how how do you just take salt and die like obviously it's not salt it's something else that maybe like looks like salt or resembles the texture of salt kind of thing when you take it three times does the, do they mean ingest it do they just mean like take a handful of it and then throw it three times or something mm-hmm See, this is where it gets lost in translation and also history and culture. We don't know anymore what that means today, you know? And there's also like literally no English sources for this story. But Margareta did answer the questions. She said that when you put the salt in the body, maggots and frogs would come out. Mm -hmm. So... For me, you know, I always like to figure out the scientific truth of it. I'm trying to think here, what would attract a frog to a deceased body or just attract a frog in general? Well, yeah, well, to me, like maybe it was something really acidic. Maybe it was something that kind of resembles salt. And if you put it three times in a person's food and like you mix it in there as like a seasoning or something like that. Maybe I wouldn't say that maggots would come out, but because, you know, maggots eat away at you, right? Mm. Acid does the same thing. If something's very acidic, it's going to do the same thing and it's going to eat away at you. Or like maybe the frogs mean like slime or like drooling or something like that. Their throat gets clogged and they sound like they have a frog in their throat. So maybe they're, they're choking. Maybe they're choking from the poison itself. And maybe it's something acidic. Like there's a poison that like dissolves your throat. And I can't remember what it's called, but (laughs) I I know that that exists. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) Also another super creepy word thing. I don't know if I'm going to add this in there because I feel like our listeners are going to be so caught off guard if I say this, but when you Mm -hmm. die, Mm -hmm. like let's say you die in lying position and then you're brought to a morgue or whatever there can sometimes be still air in your lungs. And so when they're getting that all out and they press down on your chest because the air is Mm -hmm. in there still, you can like kind of like talk after you die. Like you'll, it'll be like a moan. It'll be like a uh, sound, but like. There'll be a sound. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming out of you. Yeah. After you die, like your body naturally (laughs) farts. It lets. Yeah gas out and that it's a really natural thing and I learned that from a movie actually with um Daniel Radcliffe what's it called the Swiss army man oh my goodness you You watched that that? that's (laughs) such a weird movie but I watched the whole thing (laughs) it was so odd but I loved it so much just because of how like odd it is so ridiculous like I don't think I would recommend that movie to anyone (laughs) But it's it's funny. It's 
funny for sure. It is. I think it's cute. To me, it's, I don't know, it's about like a man kind of going a little nuts, but coming out of his shell because he's trying to work up the courage to like talk to this girl that he's been stalking on the bus, which, yeah, that sounds really bad when you say it out loud. Wait, what? I didn't get that out of the story. Really? He does go a little insane, of course, because yes, like you're talking to a dead guy and you also used his dead body as a boat to to get back home. Yeah. And the gas from the body served as like a motor, which I think is fucking hilarious. That was the main part (laughs) I remember. Yeah. 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 But all in all, I think it was just about him getting over himself kind of thing. Sorry. (laughs) I don't think anyone was going to watch it if they haven't already watched it. Yeah. (laughs) So dead people farts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Dead people farts. I was trying to remember like how we went into that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Megan, we were talking about the poison and then what it could be and like how there was a frog in the throat. And then we talked about um, how Mm -hmm. dead bodies still have air in them. And then it led into that. (laughs) One other thing that I think we need to take into consideration when translating all of these things, especially if there's something as specific as like spells, like as taking like Mm -hmm. salt and throwing it three times or whatever, is a lot of the time when you're looking at like all old potions or spells, for example, when you're making a concoction, like, you know, that one that's like, eye of newt and tongue of dog or whatever so yeah yeah yeah, so like eye of newt is actually mustard seed Mm -hmm. so when we're looking at this because first of all we don't speak the language second of all we're not from that time third of all like we don't understand those little nicknames for those herbs we might take things Mm -hmm. differently for example with that eye of newt thing like imagine you're trying to like make this like potion today and you actually get a newt's eyeball like no you're just supposed to use yeah. mustard seed like things can be lost in translation <laughs> exactly like I didn't understand what that actually meant until I went to university and then I learned about it and I was like oh it's a plant <laughs> yeah <laughs> that makes it sounds a lot less creepy when you think about it now but yeah. in in movies especially in children's spooky ones they always use eye of newt in potions to make it sound like super creepy but really it's just a plant Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I'm trying to think Um, of something that like we use here that is sort of similar that you wouldn't understand unless you're from here maybe uh, like if you buy a mickey (laughs) I don't know yeah. I'm looking at my bar cart. So I think like, in other countries, you wouldn't understand what a Mickey is. Like you might think like, oh, is that like Mickey Mouse? But that's what we call a little thing yeah. of alcohol. Yeah. Well, there's also, so like I just thought of another plant that has so many different names that people know it to be. And that's Wolfsbane. And okay, Wolfsbane yeah. sounds, it sounds like a super made up name, but it's it's also called Monkshood. Monk's hood makes more sense because of what it looks like. It literally looks like a hood that's tall and they, they have hoods. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's also known as aconite and aconite stems, stems from its Latin name, aconitum, if I'm saying it correctly. Um, yeah, and this is also like it can be a medicinal ingredient and stuff. So many different names that people don't really understand. And I chose Wolfsbane just because it's very well known in Harry Potter films, right? It's talked about consistently. 
mm-hmm. in, in, in the books too, but it, it's actually a real plant that has a yeah, lot of I've, different names. Yeah. I just pulled it up here. Besides what you said, it's also called yeah. Leopard's Bane, Mouse Bane, Woman's yeah. Bane, Devil's Helmet. Devil's Helmet, yeah. <laughs> Queen of Poisons, Blue Rocket. There's okay. so many different names for it, yeah. So once again, we see another spell lost in translation. Margarete confessed to everything about the salt. She told everyone exactly how she did it. And then once again, she said curiously that she did a a kind of a love spell to see if Jürgen and Anna would end up together. And the spell was that you, this is really weird again, because this can be something completely lost in translation, but you take a needle, stick it through a piece of bread, and then let that flow through a sieve. Let what flow? Wet bread. I don't know. Ew. Yeah. (laughs) I just thought of the texture of that. It's so gross. (laughs) very slimy porridge oh true it would be very slimy yeah maybe that's the frog ew (laughs) (laughs) i wanted to see if i could also find any evidence of that love spell working but i couldn't i suppose it would have been helpful to figure out if you were even going to be together before literally murdering a father-in-law But yeah, in the trial, Margarete was not holding back. She's coming out saying, yes, I did this spell and used this magic and got help from so-and-so person. I didn't find any evidence that she was tortured either, but we could assume so because by now they would know that the punishment for witchcraft is death. And Margarete and Anna also accused three other peasants, including a shepherd, a miller named Nano, and Nano's wife, Else. All five were to be burned for witchcraft by the executioner for helping Anna Zoiga with witchcraft in return for money, food, and gifts. Don't um, you find it, like, maddening that Anna was just, like, banished and these people were put to death and it's mainly just because of their income and who yeah. they are as people? Yeah. Well, where else yeah. were they going to go? They lived there. That was probably exactly. their only family. And Anna yeah. just gets to go free, even though she's like the mastermind of the whole thing. Yeah. Ugh. She wasn't, I don't think she was the mastermind. I think she was just the sponsor. Well, <laughs> yeah. Like not the mastermind, <laughs> but like, just like, I want to kill my husband. You do this for me. Thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really also want to work as an apprentice for Margarete. Like, I think she could teach me a lot. <laughs> uh, yes. I would love to learn all of her folk except- magic and different rituals, except for poison. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, I was going to say, except if it was in, what, 1524, because then you would get yeah. burned. So yeah, Anna herself ended up returning to Palula in 1544, even though she was banned. And she was arrested and sentenced to death, but there was no record of that. It's unknown if, when, or how she died. Like, she might have just ended up going back, but we do know mm-hmm. she was arrested and given that sentence. Obviously, she's dead now. Yeah. Why would she go back? Like, why? Why would you do that to yourself? I don't. Maybe for Jurgen. Stay away. Not worth it. Not worth it, in my opinion. No man (laughs) is worth it. Yeah, it's worth your life like that. Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
or or worth killing somebody over, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, sorry. Yes, yes. A man <laughs> can be worth your life if you love them so much. Yes, I, I do. I do believe in love, but in this case, nah. <laughs> yeah. In regards to Jürgen Madel, he lived until 1551. For Johann Max, the husband that did not die, he was mentioned to still be alive in 1550 and in good contact with his relatives. That's how we know he was still alive, through the correspondence with them. As for Palula Manor, that is now a school. I would love to go to that school, like, just to see. It's definitely, like, haunted, for sure. I wonder, I think it's an elementary school. Oh, God. (laughs) Maybe it's better off that way, though. It looks like a lot of it has been redone. There's only like a little bit of the original stone that you can actually see. Mm -hmm. So it definitely does not look the same as what it used to. There's been a lot of changes over centuries for sure. So it is the first witch trial in the Baltic states. So Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania with more than one witch followed by later in 1615, the Pied Witch Trials, which we will probably end up doing an episode on. In the records, we rarely ever see group trials in the Baltic area. Usually if somebody is accused of being a witch, it's only one person or like two people, like one person and a helper. It's never a group of people. Which makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Also, like I said, with the records of the trials in the Baltic countries, since you were able to conduct trials on your own estate, the records were almost never seen or kept because it's all Mm -hmm. on your private land. Like what you do with your people, that's, I guess, up to you. Mm. Um, But in terms of Palula, like I mentioned, the manuscripts are still kept. They're actually digitized, but they're in old Germanic. However, I will still put a picture up on our Instagram the following days as I just love looking at old manuscripts anyways, and it's in great condition. I think the best way to read those or translate them would be to see them in person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which obviously we can't do right now. No. <laughs> and one last significance of this region was that in Estonia specifically, many later witches were found guilty because of spell work relating to poisoning either food or drink, like the salt we saw earlier. And the poisoned body always had larvae and frogs associated with it like that was a common common accusation so it's very interesting to see that this specific region has this specific superstition and i'm trying to think that there must have been a well-known poison that was used yeah you know i'm trying to find it right now it's so hard to find anything on this yeah so interesting like what do they like to eat they just like to eat rotting things right which could be said for any person who's dead right but oh i thought estonian people like to eat rotting things i'm like well maybe no. like rotten fish <laughs> <laughs> no nobody likes to eat rotting things unless it's alcohol because <laughs> that's yeah is, or it's rotten fruit right Frogs don't actually eat dead things ever. They would rather starve to death than than eat like a dead bug or something that is dead. They have to 
eat it while it's still alive, right? So the only thing that they would eat that's in a dead body would be the larva itself. So they would feed on the larva, but larva forms in a body when it's dead regardless. So like... Yeah, it has to be already dead. It's pretty common. Yeah, and for them to feed on somebody that's dead, then maybe that means that the poison wasn't really acidic because the larva needs to eat like intact tissues, right? And if the poison was acidic, it would eat away at that. So... Huh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I think I'm more confused than I was now that I looked this up. <laughs> I actually just tried to Google Estonia frogs and maggots, but I actually found something. It says Estonia capital closes road for amphibian frog migration. And I just think that's so cute. Like this is your land, frogs. Go ahead and migrate and mate. That is really cute. <laughs> yeah um but we all that i can say from this is maggots form on dead bodies and where there's maggots that's froggy food so exactly exactly so i mean it's pretty common so like for for them to say oh there were frogs inside the body and maggots it's terrible no it's normal like that's completely normal if you don't embalm a body that's just what happens yeah, yeah, if anyone who listens to us is from Estonia and knows let what us they're know. talking about. Yeah. Slide into our DMs with some facts. <laughs> we would love to know. Literally anything. There's so much cool mythology from Estonia. Like Yeah. Oh. Well, while you research that stuff. I just want to add that from the documents that are preserved, 140 witch trials are known to have taken place in Estonia between 1520 and 1725, with at least 206 known individuals in the Estonia and Livonia area that you mentioned earlier, Steph. Between 1610 and 1650, we can also tell that there were at least 65 executions on account of witchcraft, And 60% were actually men. Most of the accused were also either peasants or old cunning folk, but the fact that a lot of men are being accused is interesting because we commonly think of witches as women, but in Estonia, Iceland, and some of Scandinavia, there were more men than women. So that wraps up. Estonia's trial for today. I know we will come back to Estonia in the future, but while that's over, we still have a little more for you. Just a huge happy Beltane. Happy Beltane to you, Steph. Happy Beltane. <laughs> Beltane Sa- Sawain is my favorite, but Beltane is also just super important to me just because of like what it is, I guess. Oh, can Um, I just interrupt really quickly and say that we were watching an old episode of Supernatural the other day, and it was on, well, they were pronouncing it the whole time, Sam Hain. They're like, the god of Sam Sam Hain is here, and he's going to, you know. And I was thinking, like, you know, you have so many writers and producers and all that. Like, Like no one told you? (laughs) I know I pronounced... Mabon, Mabin, Mabin, three different ways, but that's because that one's allowed to be pronounced different ways depending on how you like read it. Like it's a pronunciation thing. Um, Yeah. Canada and 
English I don't, languages yeah. are different. I don't think but, there is a right way, like a perfectly correct way to pronounce that word. No, but I, I think know. for like Samhain, like mm, probably. Samhain is a Gaelic word. Like yeah, it has a Sam correct Hain. pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but yeah, so Beltane is celebrated on May 1st um, and it's also known as May Day. I don't like to say May Day though, because then it just reminds me of saying May Day, like your plane's going to crash. So mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> just thought I'd add that in there. Um, but the Southern Hemisphere will be celebrating Samhain at this time and would um, do Beltane on October 31st. Beltane is basically when spring reaches its peak and when the mother goddess and father god, moon and sun, or the triple goddess and horn god consummate their marriage and fertilize and bring an abundance of crops and flowers throughout the next coming months. Historically, this was a Gaelic celebration observed in Ireland, Scotland, and the Isle of Man. This holiday is about joy, love, fertility, and sexual passion or lust. Many people get married or hand fast on this day for luck and for fertility. And practices include lighting pink, red, green, or yellow candles, uh, making crafts with flowers specifically, like wreaths or crowns. And these flowers are usually currently growing around you. You can also cook or bake with crops that can be harvested at this time or using fruits and veggies that will soon become available this season. Mostly you should spend some time outside in the sun or dance or have sex if you're into that and you're comfortable, of course. And yeah, that's, I think that's kind of why Beltane is one of my favorites just because it's just a very joyous time and I love spring and I love when things are beginning to bloom and it's about love and that's super important to me. So, yeah. I love that, like the springtime. That's why Ostera was one of my favorite seasons I mentioned in our Ostera special. But yeah, this one's totally about love, fertility, definitely sex. And I love how paganism doesn't stigmatize that because it's completely natural. Like as long as everyone's consensual, everything's good. It's perfectly okay to admit that you're a sexual person. It's completely fine and people should be accepting of that. And if you're not, then you need to explore that part of you. In this my is a opinion, safe space. It is a very safe space. Um being sexual and being lustful is like a lot of places still don't um educate people in high school or when they're younger about these things. You know, and it's something that like I had to come to learn on my own. And it shouldn't be a stigma. No, it shouldn't be a stigma. And I think that sexual pleasure is super important. And it's something that you should actually focus on, especially with yourself. Like if if you learn how to be like or not just be, but if you learn more about your own sexual pleasures and joy, then the better you will be in a relationship if you want one. It it literally connects you more to your human self, basically, because it's such a natural thing. It's like a natural instinct. So I think it's very important to include that in your life. And only if you're comfortable with it, of course, like I know that people are um, asexual as well, and that's completely okay. 
But if it's something that you're curious about, then I think you need to explore that because it's important. Wow. Very well put. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I don't, I like, obviously I'm not a professional and I'm not like a sexologist, but I listen to a bunch of cod, cod, <laughs> pod, pod, podcasts, podcasts by them. And I really thoroughly enjoy it because I learned so much more than what I learned when I was younger. And I wish I knew that when I was younger, so I could actually better understand myself and what I was missing, basically. Yeah. That is very well said stuff. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I really appreciate you discussing this. Beltane is completely a time of love and fertility and happiness. So if you are celebrating this weekend, once again, we would like to end this podcast episode off with just Beltane blessings and best wishes for everyone. Hope you enjoy yourself. Have a bonfire. The veil is thin this weekend. So get out there and make the most of it. Um... But that is also it for our Estonian trial today of Anazoiga and Palula. And we hope we'll have you back for our episode next week. It is going to be about a little sneak peek here. It's going to be about the concept of a witch and the surrounding folklore in Pakistan. As we've been talking about a lot of Western ideas of witchcraft, I think you can tell from this episode that every country, every culture has its own kind of idea of what a quote-unquote witch is. So one of my dearest friends is going to help us with that, and we've been talking back and forth, and I'm so excited for her to share her stories with you. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe to our podcast. It helps us a lot. If you want to email us, feel free to do so at witchstorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter where we put fun stuff related to our episodes and just fun stuff about witchcraft and about us. So our at is at witchstorypod for those. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you back here next week. Bye!